Thank you, Breck and team. Uh, my name is Jeff Wofford, if you don't recognize me. Ann and I, my wife Ann and I, have been uh, members here for maybe 12 or so years, I think. I was on the elder board for some time. And my day job is I work for a company called Covenant Dyes. It's actually a Michigan company. I work here from Dallas, um, uh, helping people to stay safe on, online. Um, but uh, I was asked to preach today and teach today, and it's my real privilege to do so. 23rd of August, 1973, Stockholm, Sweden. Jan Erik Olsen, while on leave from prison, enters a bank and attempts to rob it. He takes four of the bank employees hostage. He is a repeat offender with a record of several armed robberies and other acts of violence from the time when he was 16. He demands that his friend, a fellow prison inmate named Clark Olafsson, also be brought along, and also demands $700,000, two guns, bulletproof vests, helmets, and a Ford Mustang with a tank full of gas. He calls the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Palma, and says that he's prepared to kill the hostages. He backs up his threat by grabbing one of the women in a stranglehold. And she's heard screaming as he hangs up the phone. And yet, during the multi-day standoff that follows, when hostage Kristen Inmark begins to shiver, Olsen drapes a wool jacket over her shoulders. He soothes her after she has a bad dream. And he gives her a bullet from his gun as a keepsake. He encourages another captive, Brigitta Lundblad, when she can't reach her family by phone. He tells her, try again. Don't give up. <laughs> and when hostage Elizabeth Oldgren complains of claustrophobia, he says, well, look, I'll let you walk outside of the vault. I'm just going to attach this 30-foot rope to you but it's okay. Meander around, get some air, and uh, she's able to do that. And later, afterwards, when she's recalling these events, she says that even though she'd been leashed, um, she says, I remember thinking he was very kind to allow me to leave the vault. So Olson's kindness curries the sympathy of his hostages. When he treated us well, said the one male hostage, Sven Sofstrom, later on, we could think of him as sort of an emergency god. That's an interesting interpretation, don't you think, afterwards? We sort of thought of him as an emergency god. That's what this Swede said in 1973 of his captors. And by the second day, the hostages are on a first-name basis with their captors, and they start to fear the police more than the abductors. And the second kidnapper, Olafsson, walks around the vault singing Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly. I won't sing it for you, but it's a very appropriate song, I should say. Safstrom, one of the hostages, later recalled that after Olsen threatened to shoot him in the leg in order to shake up the police, he said, how kind I thought he was for just saying it was my, sh my leg he would shoot. And the hostage, Kristen Inmark, tried to convince him to take the bullet. But Sven, it's just in the leg. On August 26th, the police drill a hole into the main vault from the apartment above and take a widely circulated photograph, which you see in front of you, of the hostages with uh, Olafsson there on the right. 
Um, Olofsson fires his weapon into the hole on two occasions, and he wounds a police officer in the hand and face. At another time, Olson fires his weapon and threatens to kill the hostages if a gas, t- a, a gas um, attack is attempted. Then on the night of August 28, after more than 130 hours, the police do pump tear gas into the vault, and the perpetrators surrender quickly. The police call for the hostages to come out first, but the hostages yell back and they protect their abductors to the very end. They say, no, Jan and Clark should go out first. You'll gun them down if we go out first. In the doorway of the vaults, the convicts and the hostages embrace, they kiss, they shake hands, and two of the female hostages cry, don't hurt them, they didn't harm us. And while Enmark is wheeled away on a stretcher, she shouts to the handcuff Olafson, Clark, I'll see you again. It's a strangely bonding experience they, they had. The hostages' seemingly irrational attachment to their captors perplexed the public and the police, and the police even investigate whether maybe one of the hostages might have been in league with one of the, um, one of the captors. The captives themselves are confused, too. The next day, Oldgren, one of the women, asks a psychiatrist, is there something wrong with me? Why don't I hate them? Why don't I hate them? It was this crime in Stockholm, Sweden, in 1973, that gives us the term Stockholm Syndrome. It is a psychological condition in which a victim comes to sympathize with and care for his or her abusers and shows greater allegiance to them than to the authorities and rescuers who actually have the victim's best interests at heart. Stockholm Syndrome. 4th of February, 1974, in Berkeley, California, Patricia Campbell Hurst. Patty Hurst. You remember this. Um, heiress to the William Randolph Hearst newspaper fortune, the largest newspaper fortune in America. She is kidnapped from her home at UC Berkeley. She's 19 years old, a sophomore. She's kidnapped by a little-known terrorist group, basically a revolutionary American cell group called the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA for short, the SLA. They confine her to a closet barely large enough for her to lie down in. They threaten her continually with execution. She is abused sexually by members of the SLA. They constantly repeat and repeat their doctrine to her. And then they force her to repeat it, both verbally and then in writing. And over time, she begins to repeat it with more conviction, more identification with the doctrine. They record her denouncing her family, evidently sincerely, hard to know, but denouncing her family and advocating for SLA doctrine with increasing conviction. By April, they've given her a new name, Tanya, Tanya, and she begins referring to her own family as those bourgeois pigs, the Hursts, the Hursts, her own family. 
Then on April 15, 1974, the SLA, including Patty, rob a bank, and she's wielding a rifle. And that footage is widely circulated at the time. The nation is confused. The FBI continue to search for the SLA and Hearst for a year and a half. She continues to participate in a string of violent crimes. Then on September 18, 1975, she is captured, and the rest of the SLA are captured or killed. She is then charged with being a willing participant in the SLA, but her defense is that they had brainwashed her through the use of LSD and abuse and other indoctrination. She is convicted to seven years of prison, but after 21 months, President Jimmy Carter commutes her sentence, and then in 2001, Bill, uh, Bill Clinton pardoned her completely. There she is roughly at that time. Stockholm Syndrome. In Stockholm, Sweden, and then in Patty Hearst, and in various other cases over the years. It's very confusing, very strange mental phenomenon. Were these victims of kidnapping, were they willing supporters and participants in their abusers' crimes, or were they brainwashed and manipulated into acting against their own innate character and natural wishes? Were they willing or not? What would cause someone to love and trust their abusers more than their true protectors and champions? If you were brainwashed to sympathize with your captors, would you know, would you even know that you were brainwashed? Or would you completely believe what they had manipulated you to believe? And given those questions, how do you know today that you are not now a victim of Stockholm Syndrome? How do you know that you are not a victim of Stockholm Syndrome? Let's turn together to the book of Nahum, one of the minor prophets. We've been going through the minor prophets this summer. The minor prophets are not minor because they're unimportant. Minor doesn't mean unimportant. It just means brief. Ernest Hemingway was brief. That's part of what made him a great writer. The minor prophets are great writers. They are brief and to the point and powerful. I like to think of them as the Minecraft prophets because they mine. They mine at our hearts and deliver diamonds of truth and change insight. The Minecraft prophets. There's better branding for them. They need better branding. So let's talk about the background and context of the book of Nahum. What are we doing here? Where is it? What time is it? That sort of thing. Then we'll talk about the prophet's message. We'll look at some of the verses together again, and then we will look at how it applies to us. Nahum. We'll talk about the background and context. So I'll put a uh, map up for you there. This is actually a modern-day map of the uh, ancient or the Middle East, uh, what used to be the ancient Near East. And to the right, if you can see it, we have Assyria and Nineveh. Nineveh is near Mosul uh, in Iraq. You heard news in the 
2000s at least, you heard news coming from Mosul. Nineveh is near there. It's a ruin, but it is near there. And then on the left, more towards the left of the uh, image near the Mediterranean Sea there is Israel. So 2,600 years ago, the land was much the same, but Nineveh was the powerhouse, and Israel was, at least for a time, the victims of their captivity. The book of Nahum is a prophet prophecy of judgment against Nineveh. Nineveh. It's not a happy, upbeat prophecy. We don't have time to read it all today, although you can read it in 10 minutes, just on your own. Uh, it's not a long prophet, prophecy. But um, it is a prophecy of judgment. Most of the book describes the cataclysm that is falling upon Nineveh sometime in the future from Nahum's perspective. Um, when God brings judgment upon Nineveh. Uh, it's punctuated by two or three brief assurances of restoration to Israel. Uh, so Nineveh is going to destroy, excuse me, God is going to destroy Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he's going to restore Israel. Um, by 701 B.C., God's people, Israel, had been completely taken captive by the wicked and violent kingdom of Assyria. Nahum is sort of a sequel to the book of Jonah, which we studied a few weeks ago, and perhaps many of you remember from Sunday school, that Jonah is about a prophet who is sent by God to prophesy to Nineveh, prophesy repentance, and the Ninevites do repent. So that was about 760 B.C., that Jonah wrote that prophecy. It was a successful prophecy. Nahum now is written about a century later, about 650 B.C., and Nineveh has again abandoned God and become entirely an evil and violent culture. So that's the background, that's the context, that's what we're doing here in Nahum. What does Nahum say? And as we talk about this, think about where I'm going. What is he saying to us? What he says to Assyria, to Nineveh, is um, that they will be destroyed for their abuse, their oppression, and God will deliver the Israelites. So uh, Israel was literally kidnapped by Assyria. Assyria conquered their nation and then took them away in chains to Assyria to be slaves. They were abused and enslaved. And over time, Israel began to doubt God's power to save them. They began to love their captors more than God, to act like the Assyrians rather than as God people, God's people. And they began to worship the Assyrian gods rather than the true God. Nahum assures the captives of Israel that God is still their Savior, and he will liberate them. He urges them to celebrate God's festivals, that is, to continue to worship the true God, even in the midst of this captivity. Celebrate God's festivals, worship the true God. Nineveh, despite all its power and comfort and long stability, will be utterly destroyed, while God's people will be fully restored. That was his prophecy of the future. And Nineveh was destroyed 
Nahum was right in his prophecy. In 612 B.C., the Medes and Persians came in and wiped out Nineveh, and now it's a bit of ruin in Iraq. Let's look together at some of the verses that capture the essential spirit of Nahum. If you have your Bible, look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. Take note of that second sentence there, second part. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. But who isn't guilty? We'll come back to that question. Look at verse 6. Who can withstand the Lord's indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him, trust in him. Skip down to verse 15. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. And if you flip forward a page or two to the very last verse of Nahum, that is 3.19, Nahum 3.19, this verse gives a good summary of what his book explains to the Ninevites. He says against Nineveh, Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? What is Nahum saying? He's saying that no matter how powerful anyone is, back then or today, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how safe, no matter how many millions or billions you have in stocks and bonds, no matter how handsome or healthy or wealthy, when the Lord comes to judge you for your sin, you will be burned up like dry stubble, like a wildfire through grass. But, Nahum says, God will rescue the faithful and restore them to full blessing. That's the background and context and message of Nahum. How does it apply to us today? I'm going to suggest three applications. Three applications. And as I explain them, ask yourself, does this one apply to me? Does this one apply to me? I guarantee you, I guarantee you that at least one of these applies to everybody in here. So listen for it. Application number one, if you are the oppressed, there are people here in this room 
who can genuinely and legitimately recognize that they have been or currently are a subject of abuse and oppression. And if that is you, Nahum speaks to you. The Lord is faithful. He will restore. God is on your side, not the powerful. The powerful will not stay powerful. When God comes in judgment, the powerful will collapse in a moment. Injustice will not continue forever. So, remain faithful. Nahum says, celebrate your festivals, O Judah. Festivals for the Israelites were acts of worship. Celebrate your festivals, O believer. And fulfill your vows. So keep your eyes on God. Practice thankfulness and worship. And he will bring relief and full restoration. That's application number one. If you are a subject of abuse. Application number two applies to you if you are the oppressor. Nahum wrote to the Ninevites, and he said, you guys may feel okay with yourselves, and you may feel comfortable and safe, but you are oppressors, and God is against you, and your time is coming. And it did come. Search yourself. Think of your employees, your spouse, your kids, perhaps a sibling, Do you miswield your power, your comfort, and subject others to oppression or abuse? If so, then watch out. Your time is coming. Don't trust in your comfort. Don't trust in your power, your job, your position, your retirement account, your status, your authority. No matter how right or how secure you feel, God's judgment will come and it will establish what is true. Your situation is exactly as secure as God wants it to be. Therefore, repent. Make yourself ready for God's judgment. That's application number two if you are the oppressor. The last application, then, I know applies to us us all, and that is that if you believe in Christ, he is liberating you from all sin. Christ is liberating us from sin. Because we are all victims of Stockholm Syndrome. Yes, we are. And I'm not so sure I even mean this metaphorically. I think this is actually true, and I'll show you why in a moment. We are actually victims of Stockholm Syndrome. We have lost Eden, and we live in a fallen world. What do you mean, fallen world? Walk down the street. Nobody looks you in the eye. 
Nobody wants to make eye contact. Why not? You live next to your neighbor for a few months, for a year, for a decade. You live next to a neighbor for a lifetime. And what do you ever really know about them? There's a wall between all of us. There is no trust. Each of us trusts himself, herself, and everybody else is conditional. Every door has a lock. Every dollar bill, every can of Coke, every lollipop has an owner who guards it jealously. This is not the way our world was meant to be. This is not what God created us to be a part of. We are living in captivity. Look at little babies. Little babies have their share of sin that they display in selfishness and so forth. And yet when they meet, they often kiss and hug as soon as look at each other. That's a demonstration of a purity that we lose as we live in the captivity and the oppression and the abuse and the brainwashing of sin. Children are capable of delight and joy that is seared out of us as we age and we go into adulthood. We become bitter, isolated, jaded, close-fisted, hateful, divisive. And we spew the doctrine of our own enemies. We become advocates of sin. We have been so deeply subjected to Stockholm Syndrome that we don't even know how utterly saturated by sin we are. Heaven is going to be a shocking wash of cold, pure water that will suddenly make every one of us say, my God, how have I spent this life? And thank God that now I am in the light of God's own perfect love. We have all been kidnapped, like those bank employees, like Patty Hearst, by sin. It soothes us. It comforts us. But then it betrays us and tortures us. We are abused, indoctrinated, and tricked into doing sin's bidding. We can't even tell anymore within ourselves where the abuser ends and the victim begins. Think about that. We can't even tell anymore within ourselves where the abuser ends and the victim begins. We have two names. The name that sin has given us And then the name written on a white stone that Christ will give us when we are glorified. But we've forgotten and haven't learned that name. As Nahum said, who has not felt your endless cruelty? For us, that is the endless cruelty of sin. Who has not felt it? And as Paul cried out, who will rescue me? From this body of death, who will rescue me from this body of death? But God says in the book of Nahum, no more will the wicked invade you. Invade you. Invade 
you. You will be restored, and they will be completely destroyed. How? Because Christ, Christ, Christ has set a fuse to a bomb that is hissing beneath the city of Nineveh. A day is coming when those who are faithful will be restored to Eden and something greater than Eden, to God's own presence, completely unsullied, white, pure, unashamed, looking face-to-face with their Savior, with unblinking eyes, unveiled faces, face-to-face. Jesus said they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Captives, you can't even imagine that. You don't believe it. Neither do I. But God says, I've seen it. It's coming. You will be restored to a life you can't even remember. Is sin too powerful for God to accomplish all this? No. Because he already has. When Christ, the Son of God, died without ever having sinned himself, he took the sin of the world onto himself. The punishment that we deserved, remember, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, and yet we are guilty. The punishment that Jeff Wofford deserved, that you deserved, has been executed. Christ took it upon himself. He died in our place. We were co-conspirators with our captor, sin. But he took the punishment upon himself. Christ died in our place. Hear that. Usually only four words, five words, that you need to recognize when you get to heaven. Christ died in my place. Christ died died in my place. He took my punishment so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Nahum tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, but you see now that the guilty are punished. Some are punished themselves for their own sin, but those who put their faith in Christ Their sins are punished in Christ. That's the simple deal of the universe. That's the whole story. That is the simple contract of the universe. Either let Christ be punished for your sins or be punished for your sins yourself. Paul says this, He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. And so, now, you have a choice. What do you love more? Your captor, sin, or your Savior, Christ? You have a choice. Believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins or reject Jesus 
and continue to be allied with your captor, sin. Believe in Jesus, be saved from the wrath to come, and restored to the paradise of God as Nahum described, or reject Jesus and be subject to the wrath to come, and destroyed without defense or appeal. Believe in Jesus or reject Jesus. What will you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Nahum speaking powerfully into our lives. We do pray that you would work in the minds of each of us as we hear those words and that teaching. If there is any here who have not previously believed in Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and faith and restoration, justification at this very moment. And I pray that you would continue to convict those of us who abuse or collaborate with abuse. Um, Not thinking of any specific thing, Lord, but you know how we need to change to live out righteousness more fully. I pray that you would continue to convict. I'll also pray uh, for uh, the Jacksons, for for Justin and Rachel, as uh, this baby thinks about coming today or tomorrow perhaps, that the delivery would be quick and uh, as easy as you can make it, Lord, and um, baby would be healthy, Jonathan Garrett would be healthy, and that you would give them great joy, all five of them great joy in the arrival of uh, their their, uh, family member. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.